talking to you wherever you go and whatever you do the earth will keep giving you clue after clue so you won't forget to remember what's true down low and as sure as the sun will keep rising above don't forget to remember that you're dearly loved so just like the stars won't forget how to shine don't forget to remember that all of the time God's light will guide you wherever you go And your love from the tops of your head to your toes Your love from the top of your head to your toes Let the whole earth remind you of what God has said From the moment you wake up till you go to bed Oh, and even on days you forget what is true don't forget to remember, God won't forget you. Don't forget to remember, God won't forget you. Don't forget to remember, God won't forget you. Thank you, Kyler. Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Thanks for being here this morning. For those at home, thanks for joining us. Um, excited to be here, excited to come together and worship um, this morning to set our minds, attentions, and hearts' affections upon Jesus. And that's what we're going to do in just a few moments. But before we jump into, um, into that, into that focused attention, just a couple of quick reminders. Um, first, uh, coming up tomorrow is adoration, Monday nights. Um, Monday mornings, a Zoom call. Monday evenings, a time of prayer that Kyler leads um, in Vickery Meadows. I uh, hope you'll take a part of that. Uh, you can find out more information both on our uh, calendar, on the website, as well as by texting, emailing, or grabbing Kyler uh, after the gathering. Um, also, coming up in just a couple weeks, I believe it is Saturday, May 8th. Night of Saturday, May 8th. That's Night of, yep, why don't you just, what, what are we yeah, doing? Okay, so uh, if you don't know, this is the month of Ramadan in the Islamic calendar, and the uh, at, towards the end of Ramadan, before Eid, there is what's called the Night of Power. And in Islam, they believe that uh, if, if you pray, any prayer on that night is worth in their scale of justice and balance and trying to earn God's merit system um, worth a, a thousand months worth of prayer. And so all over the world, millions of Muslims are going to be staying up all night long praying, trying to seek uh, and earn God's uh, favor and blessing. And it's a time historically that the Lord has in his mercies um, given dreams and visions to Muslims all over the world. And so we in Vickery Meadow are, and you guys are all welcome to join us, going to be doing what our annual, we do this every year, all night prayer, uh, and you can come at any time. We get started at like 8 p.m. It's over at Jennifer Sutton's house. I can give you information, but uh, yeah, we'll be praying all night. You guys are all more than welcome to join us Saturday, May 8th, and we'll be wrapping up Sunday morning. Awesome. 
wrap up Sunday morning and come and enjoy Mother's Day. Um, and it'll be awesome. Great. It'll be an awesome. Uh, you don't have to stay at any. You can come for 30 minutes and just meet some new people. It'd be a lot of fun. It would be great. And so it'd be a, a, a great opportunity to not only just participate in what Kyler's doing and what what dozens of men and women are doing in Victory Meadows, but as he said, um, really what God does around the world at this time of year um, and how God intervenes um, uh, into the lives of those who are seeking after him and how we can labor on their behalf um, on that Saturday night. And so, um, again, more information, grab Kyler, connect with Kyler. Um, if you don't have Kyler's information, you can connect with me, uh, and I'll make sure you, you get that information. And then last, um, uh, lastly, you should have got an email this week about uh, opening up our kids' time. So starting in a couple Sundays, we'll have a time for our youngest kids in the gathering to go have some special time for themselves, to learn uh, about Scripture, to pray, um, and to enjoy one another and the men and women of our faith family. And so um, you should have got an email about volunteering and what you need to do to help volunteer. Volunteer. Um, and so if you hadn't filled that out yet, if you haven't seen that email, just be sure to check your email. Um, I'll send a reminder tomorrow, um, but we'll start assigning um, uh, help um, volunteers over the next couple of weeks. And so uh, as well as giving information about um, all the precautions and uh, processes and all that as well. And so just as a reminder, that's coming up. Um, so be sure to check your inboxes and respond um, uh, appropriately if you don't mind. And so all that said, everything else going on outside of this time, uh, this time is meant to set our minds, attentions, and hearts, affections upon Jesus as we open the scriptures, as we sing songs, um, as we receive communion. And so will you do this with me? Will you pray and ask the Holy Spirit who is present with us um, to calm our hearts and minds, to help us anchor into uh, his presence uh, and be able to worship him um, today in this moment so that we might be ones who follow him outside of this moment in the, in the rest of life, in the ups and downs, and the, the joys and the struggles of life in the kingdom of God here and now. We pray and ask the Lord to do that with us. Um, Father, we thank you for your mercy. It's new um, and fresh, as refreshing as the rain is, as soaking as the rain has been uh, even last night. Uh, Lord, that is your mercy upon us. That is your, uh, your spirit upon us to... Um, to give us all that we need to grow into fullness and um, immaturity in Jesus. So we thank you for the reminders, as we just sang, um, of, um, of your love. I just pray as we enter into this time, wherever we come out of, Father Lord, a week of um, sadness and struggles, a week of joys and opportunities, um, Lord, um, and whatever we might have before us, Father, Lord, a week of travel, a week of uh, leisure, a week of just the normal, uh, Lord, um, I pray that in this moment, Father, your spirit would allow us to be present with one another, um, allow us to be present to your presence amongst us in scripture and song and in um, the symbols of Jesus's life given for us. Holy Spirit, fill us, give us ears to hear, that we might hear what you say to us today. Um, all in your son's name we pray, amen. To help begin our gathering, to help us usher into this time, we've asked Sam to come up and to, be, to read a psalm for us. So Sam, you wanna head up here, my friend? What a beautiful home. God of the angel armies, I've always longed to have a, to live in a place like this. Always dreamed of a room in your house where I could sing for joy to God alive. Birds find nooks and crannies in your house. Sparrows and swallows make nests in there. They lay their eggs and raise their young, singing their
their songs in a place where we worship God of the angel armies, King God. How blessed are how blessed they are to live and sing there, and how blessed all those in whom li you live, whose lives become roads you travel. They wind through lonesome valleys, come upon brooks, discover cool springs, and pools brimming with rain. God traveled these roads, curve up the mountain, and at the last turn, Zion got in full view. Amen. You're invited to stand and sing with us today.
Revelation 3, 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie behold. I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world, to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thank you, Maria. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Revelation 3. Um, that's where we'll be this morning. As uh, we're starting to get to the end of our, uh, of our letters, uh, we only have a couple left. Um, and we'll, have, but we'll, uh, we'll do something special for Mother's Day next week. So this will give us a chance to kind of sit and soak in uh, this letter um, specifically um, before we introduce the last letter. And it, I don't know if you've noticed, but if you've kind of kept up in um, the letters, if you've um, if you've practiced the Lectios, if you've taken advantage of those, those resources to, to kind of help um, give you a little background and guidance into entering into the text and trying to hear and listen to the, what the Spirit says to us in those texts, um, you might have noticed that a couple things are coming together. Um, that while each church has this individual word spoken to them, this unique address spoken to them, um, that again, the names of Jesus, the way he describes himself, all goes back into this original vision of Jesus. And so in all these little pieces, um, these, these particulars of each individual church, we're not just finding a picture of Jesus, a un unity of Jesus in this, but we're also beginning to see um, um, what Jesus wants of us. In the unity of Jesus, we also find, uh, in the complete vision of Jesus, we also find the vision that Jesus has for us. Jesus, as, as king of the seen and the unseen world, wants for us, um, through, and we find this out through encouragements and admonitions, he wants complete and maturing works. He wants faith, love, service, and patient endurance, not as a way to earn our uh, place within the kingdom, but because of what he gives us, the promises that come in each of the letters. And so in each of these letters, we're kind of building more and more this fuller image of what God would have for us, what full life looks like in the midst of tribulation and kingdom um, because of Jesus, because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us, because what Jesus is doing and what Jesus will do for us finally and fully one day. 
And so this week, as we enter into this, this next to last letter, uh, we enter into a name of a city that um, is familiar with us, Philadelphia. And if you're from Dallas, you hate Philadelphia, um, um, specifically Philly. Maybe not this Philadelphia, but Philly, right? And so let's try to put that out of our mind. The, these, are, these, are different, these are different contexts. These are not eagles. Um, and so we don't have to think about that. They're not our enemies. Um, and again, a joke that falls flat. Uh, apparently we have no, no cowboy fans in and amongst us. That's okay. But, but Philly, as you, as you know, um, is a Philadelphia. It's like a lot of our cities in America are named for cities um, in different countries, for historical places, historical people, all those kind of things. Um, and Philadelphia, again, is, is the sixth church kind of on this journey around this, um, this western edge of Turkey, um, this, this postal route um, that, um, that Jesus has sent these letters to. Um, and uh, as you know, uh, Philadelphia means brotherly love. It means um, a city of brotherly love. But it gets its name because of who the city was named after. Uh, the city was founded by King Eumenes. Uh, he was, this is actually the youngest city of the seven cities that we're, that we're studying. So a lot of these cities had really ancient roots, really deeply ancient roots. Um, this city was probably founded about two, 200 to 250 years before the letter was written. So if you think about the difference between like Pergamum that, that goes back to prehistoric times and then to Philadelphia, like there's, there's quite a bit of age gap in the cities. It's a relatively young city. Um, it's, it's named after a king that we know, uh, specifically after the king's brother, Atlas, Philadelphus. So the, king's bro- the king that founded it was Humanes, but his brother, Atlas Philadelphus, um, was um, is what this, who's the, kind of the, the city is honored for. And he's honored because of Atlas, his brotherly affection, um, because of the loyalty and honor that Atlas showed towards his brother. There's actually a couple stories um, where Atlas's name became true of him. Um, one was uh, there was a time when um, during a, um, a campaign, Eumenes was out, and the report came back that he had died in battle, and so his brother was crowned king. Um, and, so, um, and so Atlas took the throne, but then when he discovered that his brother was actually alive, the founding king, the true king was still alive, he, he willingly gave up the crown and gave the, gave the throne back to his brother, which is kind of a big deal, especially in this, this age and this time where it seems like most siblings were at war with one another uh, and always at battle with one another, always jockeying for position because if you weren't the oldest, you were not going to get what it is that you desired most. And here it is, a younger brother gave up what he thought was his for a moment and what was given to him and what he really could have kept and claimed based on the, the resources that he had. But instead, he willingly gave back in loyalty and honor, gave back the crown to his brother once he realized that his brother was alive and not actually dead. And you kind of move down the timeline a little further. Um, at, the, at this time um, in the world, um, Rome is beginning to kind of take over everything. And as Rome begins to move this direction and try to take over this area, um, uh, Atlas was approached by, um, by Roman envoys um, to, to basically uh, encourage to overthrow his brother. Uh, and that if he would, he would comply with them and work with them, um, that he would therefore get the crown. Um, that he would, again, take his brother's, usurp his brother's position if he would work with, at the time, the enemy, Right? And so, like, if, if you've grown up in the church at all, if you know any of the stories of our scriptures, a lot of these stories sound very familiar, right? There's a lot of parallels to the stories of, of even our faith, right? That this city was kind of founded around the idea of a younger brother giving um, authority where it was due to his older brother in loyal love. 
And that's where the city came from. And in some ways, that's like us, because we just sang it just a minute ago, like, Jesus is who? Our brother. He, we thought he was dead. Do we take the crown? Or do, do we give it back to him when we know that he's alive and living as humans, right? Or when we, like in the Garden of Eden, when the, the Adam and Eve were approached to um, usurp um, the authority of God, do we, when we're approached by the, um, as we've seen in the past, the, the, the Balaams and the Balaks and the Jezebels and the synagogues of Satan and all those, when we're, when we're coerced into saying, hey, like Satan before Jesus in Matthew 4, um, um, if you just bow to me, you can have the kingdoms. Do we show loyalty and honor and um, um, fidelity, this love to our older brother, our, the, first of, the firstborn from the dead, Jesus? Or do we, um, do we war and battle and rage and try to claim what, what we think should be ours, but what is, what is rightly his? And so even in the city, in the name of the city of Philadelphia, we have kind of this like, this gospel image already present in the founding of this place. Even though they weren't necessarily um, stories from our scriptures, it's stories that easily align with, with our scriptures. And so the, the irony is, and the beauty of Philadelphia is, and again, as a Cowboys fan, it makes me really hard to talk so well about Philadelphia, but the beauty of this place was, was not just that it was a city of brotherly affection, a city of loyal, honorable love, of, of rightly understanding your place within the family and giving honor to the one who deserves the honor, authority to the one who deserves authority, all that, but it was actually uh, considered a missionary city. And so, um, like, you can kind of see where Philadelphia is there on the map. Um, everything east of Philadelphia was Phrygia. So it was, uh, it was this, 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 this large, expansive land full of resources, um, part of a land that the Greeks had not um, conquered, at least fully, and had not influenced, at least um, into a level of saturation. And so when the city was founded, it bordered Mysia, Lydia, and uh, Phrygia, and became known as the gateway or door to the east. It was founded not as a garrison city. So, like, you remember the citadels of Sardis or, like, Smyrna, like, these, these huge, like, military kind of um, places of Thyatira. None of, those, none of that existed here. There was no garrison. But it was, instead, it was, the pur- it was founded for the purpose of spreading the Greek culture to the lands and peoples to which it had access. Philadelphia was begun out of this affectionate, uh, named in, in honor of this affectionate relationship, this loyal and honorable relationship. It was meant to be a city that spread the culture and the language of Greece into, at that time, Phrygia, into the world that was not like the, the Greeks. And actually, it was really successful. So by, the, by AD 19, uh, within a, about a 150 to 200 years or so of the city's founding, the Lydians had forgotten their own language and were all but Greeks. The people around the area had so been missionized, evangelized into the Greek way and Greek language that they were actually Greek. They had lost some of their foundations of who they were before. One archaeologist, Sir William Ramsey, referred to Philadelphia as the center for the diffusion of Greek language and Greek letters, listen to this, in a peaceful land and by peaceful means. And that's really in contrast to how the Romans would, would spread their message, right? How um, they would, um, their way of peace was through force. And so, ironically, this city, again, like has all these beautiful kind of gospel realities in its naming and its history and its inclinations. It was going to spread this culture and this language in a way that was peaceful and through peace and not through violence, not through strength. And so it became known in the region as a missionary city. 
But here's the thing. The missionary city wasn't the easiest city to live in. Now, it wasn't necessarily not easy because of, of economics or because of oppression. It was not easy to live in because it was actually on a, um, on a fault line. And so if you remember last week when we talked about Sardis was destroyed in AD 70 um, uh, by a great earthquake, that earthquake epicenter was just outside of Philadelphia. And so Philadelphia was all but leveled. Um, it was, when it was rebuilt, the structures that were rebuilt look like this. Um, these are actually still today. This is in, this is in um, 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 I'm going to get the name of the city wrong in Turkey, but what was ancient Philadelphia? You can go see these. And look at the size of these pillars, the foundations that had to be created. The reason that happened is because being so close to the epicenter, they didn't just experience the earthquake. They experienced aftershocks for, from what we can tell, nearly a decade. For nearly a decade, the city was under constant barrage and pressure of the earth shaking, um, their buildings crumbling, um, cracks happening. And so there was this shaky ground in which this city uh, lived in for a, a minimum of a decade. But then not only that, it created, because for so long and so dr drastic was that experience, it created within the city this kind of anxiety of uncertainty and shakiness. This, and so what happened is a lot of the people actually lived outside of the city. So they moved from within the city structure itself into the farmlands where they could kind of keep things level, not build things high. But they'd come every day back into the city to do business, to worship, to live their communal lives, but then would return out of the city, leave the gates, leave the doorway, and go back into the, into the country. And this became the kind of normal living of the city. Um, and, and so like uh, Sardis, um, Philadelphia was rebuilt by Tiberius, the emperor of Rome at the time, um, very generously. And so uh, because the city was an honorable city and because the city was built on this idea of loyal love and honor, um, it, it changed its name for a season to Neo Caesarea, which is the new city of Caesar. Um, not long after this, there was some other um, agricultural and economic issues that happened. And the next emperor, um, um, Vespasian, I'm, I'm sure I mispronounced that, um, came in and again, treated the city with honor and with care, uh, was generous to the city. And so the city, once again, changed its name in honor of his um, kind of family name, which was Flavius to Flavin. And so the city changed its name once again. So the city had multiple names. And after about a 50-year period, went back to Philadelphia. Like that, it came back to the, again, to the kind of the root of who they were, an honorable, loyal city. Um, now, here's the thing that, that um, that I want us to know as we read this letter um, about the church in, um, in Philadelphia is of all the seven cities, um, the only city who has today a church traceable, a family of faith traceable back to that first century is Philadelphia. They're the only one. Every other city is either completely gone and dispersed, so there is no, no people there, or there's no traceable community of Jesus followers still there. There might be some that have come and come back in and moved back in, but as you know, like Turkey, um, um, after, it became, after the Romans took over, it became a part of the Byzantine um, Empire, so at one time they kind of had a deep kind of Orthodox Christianity, but then uh, the Moors and the Muslims took over, it became, became a Muslim nation, um, but all through that there's been this consistency of a family in Philadelphia of faith, um, which is, again, pretty amazing. And so, again, Philadelphia, a missionary city, always living in dread of disaster, many of his people moving out, but you know, taking a name of, at the time, an imperial god and a time of a, um, somebody of honor to demonstrate their loyalty to those who helped establish them, to those who rebirthed them, to those who protected and honored them. 
And so this is the city in which this family of faith started and continues today. And so as we look in this, just kind of keep that in mind. That of all the cities that we've talked about, of all the faith families that we've mentioned, this is the one that has survived. <laughs> this is the one that has kept going. And so as always, we'll start with who Jesus describes himself as. To this, to this city, um, um, to a city that, um, that has all these, these, these honorable things, Jesus describes himself as holy and true. Go to uh, verse 7. And the angel of the church in Philadelphia wrote, The words of the Holy One, the true one is how it reads in our translations, but in the Greek, it's just holy, true one. The holy, true one. The separate one, the authentic one, the faithful witness to God, the one who is God. In the Old Testament, holy is a reference to God. True is this idea of not just genuine, but authentic, um, 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 faithful to, um, to be proven accurate and to be true, proven trustworthy. And so Jesus, again, to a, a place that is built on honoring, he shows himself to be the most honorable. He's holy and true. And not only is he honorable, he also, as we keep reading in the same verse, says, he has the key of David who opens and no one will shut and shuts and no one will open. Um, so where does that come from? That's a little different. Um, we, we remember, if you remember in chapter 1, there's some keys, uh, the keys of death and Hades that Jesus the resurrected holds. But this sounds a little different. And so where does this come from? And so just to give us kind of a little context, because I think it's helpful, um, this actually comes from Isaiah 22. And so in Isaiah 22, um, there's a steward over the, the, the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem hasn't been destroyed yet, um, but the steward's not a good steward. Um, the steward's not a faithful steward. And so this, this letter that God is talking about what he's going to do to the unfaithful steward and what he's going to put in place of the unfaithful steward or who he's going to put in place of the unfaithful steward. So we read together in Isaiah 22, it says, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the household, the household of Jerusalem, the city of God, the people of God, and say to him, What have you to do here? And whom have you here that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself? Why have you honored yourself? Why have you made yourself this great person? You who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. Who are you? God's saying, like, who are you to honor yourself? Who are you to put yourself in the lineage of God's faithful? Think about that in regards to, to, to Philadelphia. Who are you to put yourself in the lineage of God's people? The synagogue of Satan, the ones who said, are said to be liars, right? That's what, that's what Jesus calls the opposition to, in Philadelphia. He's basically saying the same thing to Shebna. Like, you're a liar. You're not the honorable one. You're not the king. You don't deserve to have this, this place, this thing put upon you. Who, who are you to take more authority and honor than, than uh, you've been given? Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently. <laughs> oh, you strong man, strong man, man of power. He's, he's a place, a person of influence. He has the resources of the city, the resources of the people, uh, the resources of position. He will seize firm, uh, firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into, the, um, into a wide land. I mean, just kind of get the image there, right? This strong guy who's proudful, prideful and arrogant and believes in some way that he is the king, even though he's not rightly the king. He's just a steward. That would have been Atlas to some degree if he had taken over Eumenes when Eumenes was alive and kept the crown, right? Like there's a, there's a comparison here of like, like, he's just a steward, and yet, in his strength, God just picks him up like a stick and just whirls him around and just throws him, this strong man. Like, there's a, there's a sense of, like, humility that should come from that, right? There you shall die, and there sh shall be your glorious chariots, what you took honor in, what you took security in. 
Uh, you shame of your master's house. Instead of honor, you brought shame. I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station. So here it is. God's just saying the steward's the one who thinks he's got it. We're going to remove him. It's going to be a very dramatic removal, um, and it's going to demonstrate the, the authority and power of God um, and the lack of honor of the one who is trying to be the steward. But he goes on, he says, In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, which is also the father of Jeremiah, by the way. So most likely this was a brother um, or some sort of close relationship to Jeremiah. And he says, I will clothe him with your robe. I will take what, you've been, what you think you're wearing, the kingly robe, the priestly robes, and I will take those off of you, and I will bind your sash on him, and I will commit your authority to his hand. I will pass what you think is yours, the honor and authority and power and kingship and all those kind of things, and I will hand it over to him. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder, what? The key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place. And he will become a throne of honor. There's that honor again. To his father's house. So, this, this idea of the key of the house of David, this, this is, is in this setting in Isaiah and what came to be known in Jewish history as access to, um, to, uh, to two things. Access to um, the place of God's anointed, the place of, um, of God's established rule, so his kingdom. And also, at the same time, a... Um, an access to the responsibility that comes with that access. The, the, the right to rule, the, the, as we've talked about before, um, to have authority, um, to, um, to practice a life of faith. <laughs> um, all that is wrapped up in this idea of the king of David, the king of the house of David, um, that the, whoever possesses it will, like, like Jesus said in, in his keys to death in Hades, he will have the access to life, to open it, to whom he opens it to, to shut it, to whom he shuts it to, to allow who to come in and who to go out. And not only does that just mean access to, it also means kind of this idea of like whoever he brings in, they're brought in. There's no question. There's no leaving. There's no removal. In, um, in the uh, Aramaic translation of Isaiah 22, um, it kind of gives us a fuller picture of this. It says, I will place the key of the sanctuary and the authority of the house of David in his hand. The key of the sanctuary, the place of worship, the presence of God, and the authority of the house of David in his hand. This is, this is who Jesus is. Jesus is the one who gives us access to, to God. He's the one who gives us access into the relationship with God, the place of worship. And listen, um, we're going to read it here in a second. Um, in the promises, when he says he's going to build us into a temple, the word there is not generic for the generic temple. The word there is for the Holy of Holies. The most sacred place is what we're built up into. This is what the key of David gives Jesus access to. He gives us access to the most sacred place, the place of union face-to-face -face with God. The place where God's spirit is in its fullness and his holiness overwhelms. And he also is given the authority to rule, the authority to establish, the authority that he, as we saw in, in, um, in Thyatira, is an authority that he shares with us. So, this is who Jesus is. In a city built around honor and loyalty, Jesus is pictured as the most honorable one 
the right king, the one whose kingship we should not try to, try to take because we think he's dead and not alive and living and active, or because the enemy is trying to, to convert us into warring against him and getting what we want through, through their way, right? That's who Jesus pictured us. So who are the people of the faith family? Who are they? Well, in verse, verse uh, 8, it says, I know your works. We've heard this a lot before. But if you jump over to verse 11, real quick, he says this in verse 11. Um, he says, I'm coming soon. He says, hold fast what you have. So where have we heard that before? Who else was told to hold fast to what they have? It was the thigh tyrants. For all those out there, thanks for everybody jumping in and, and, and all that. Um, the thigh tyrants. And their works were what? Do you remember? Their works were complete. And not only were they complete, their works of faith, love, service, and patient endurance, the complete fullness of what Jesus called them to, but their works were actually maturing and growing. They were, their latter works were even more so than their former works. That, that they were actually growing in their works. And so we have in Philadelphia the same, the same encouragement. That the Philadelphian church is like the Thyatiran church, that they're growing and maturing that they're being faithful in the way that they are um, loyal to God and to Jesus in their love for one another and for those outside of their faith family who are their enemies even, unlike um, Ephesus. They're faithful in their service, in the way that they, they, they care for themselves and their, and their city, and they are patiently enduring. They are not giving in to the pressures of the world. And so, they, so they're told to hold fast. They're doing what they're called to do. That's all they're called to do, and they're, meant, they're told to hold fast to it. But there are also people that are set on a mission. And again, read in verse 8. He says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Again, what is the city of Philadelphia named? The door to, to the east. This missionary city. God set before them all the world. A, a world to invite into a relationship with him. And a city of peace it's meant to be a missionary city through means of peace. Jesus says, I've opened that up for you. That's a door that won't shut for you. There's a mission. There's a participation that can't be shut. There's access to the kingdom. Again, the keys of, of David that I've given to you. I've made open to you. That means both you personally, but as, as Jesus would say to his disciples, um, it also is those who you invite into it. What you loose, I loose. Will you bind? I bind. Jesus is telling them that they have a mission. They have an open door that won't be shut to them, which is pretty incredible, right? You're faithful. You have complete works. You're in a place and in a context in which you get to be a part of God's bringing the nations to himself. Because that's what was happening in Philadelphia. But listen to this. Even though they were complete works, they were set on a mission, they had, um, he says this, the, um, um, I'll, I'll set before you um, an open door which no one has shut. I know that you have but little power. They were a church in all, in all history, even today to some degree. They are a church of small size, of small standing, of little influence, and little authority in the seen reality of the city of Philadelphia. They're not big. They're not powerful. But as we just read in Isaiah 22, the Lord kind of slings the powerful out, out, right? They don't have a lot of influence. And yet, 
Jesus says, hold fast. Yet, Jesus says, I've got a mission for you. I put you exactly where I want you to be to be a part of this. Even though they have little influence, little size, little standing, that they're easily looked over. And why has Jesus done these things? Why, has, why, has, why can Jesus say that they're faithful? Why can Jesus say that they're on a mission? Why can he, Jesus say, even though they have little power, like even though by all measurements of the world, they shouldn't be the ones that get this kind of credit and this kind of opportunity? Why can Jesus say that? We keep reading in verse, in verse 8. He says, And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Notice that he uses my twice. They were faithful to Jesus' word, my word, my name, to Jesus' character. And as we've talked about before, that is the means of living a life with Jesus. It's not just, it's not just that they're just faithful to affirm the, the doctrine of Jesus. They're faithful to the way of Jesus, the character of Jesus, the imitation of Jesus. They're faithful to the, what Jesus promised, who Jesus said he was, and how Jesus actually lived. That's it. Because of that, they get this extremely um, generous, gracious, and affirming, um, honorable mention in the history of our faith. But, but like any place, like any people of faith, there's opposition, right? Like they didn't, they, it wasn't, even though they were living well, living in Jesus' word, they were complete works, they, were, they had a clear God opened a mission before them. Um, though they were small, there was still a lot of, of, of energy and power behind what they were doing. Not their power, but God's power. Um, they, they still found themselves in a hard spot. And so in verse 9 it says this, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Where does this come from? This sounds a little drastic, right, for, for our modern ears, um, to have our enemies bow at our feet. Aren't we supposed to love our enemies, to serve them, to wash their feet, all those kind of things? Isn't that kind of the mindset that we have? Well, this is what Jesus is saying to them. Again, an Old Testament allusion back into Isaiah 60. Isaiah 60 says this. It says, The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Who are, who are the, who's Philadelphia about to get called? What name is going to be written on them as pillars? The city of God. The city of my God. And so Jesus is saying, like, listen, like, I'm going to be the one that vindicates, that um, vindicates your, um, your validity, that validates your validity. This shows you, I remember, I'm holy and true. And I will show as Paul would say in, in, in Romans 5, um, that your faith doesn't put you to shame, that the hope that you live out of does not lead to shame, but leads to honor. Isaiah 56, 1 through 8 explains this even further. It says, Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning, and keeps his hands from doing evil, the very kind of lifestyle of the Philadelphian church. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, listen, this is amazing, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let not the foreigner say, who's joined themselves with the Lord say, hey, listen, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a Jew. 
I'm not in this lineage of faith, but I'm joined with it. Let not him say that I'm not, I don't deserve this. Let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree, for I have no fruit to bear. I have nothing that will come after me. I have no, no mission to be a part of, no way of spreading the, the, the love of God from generation to generation. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument, also called a pillar, and a name better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. The Church of Philadelphia was getting to see this prophecy in life. To see God's anointed and God's people living faithfully and those outside of the faith historically in a place, a foreign place, in a foreign context, come to know Jesus and to follow Jesus. And we know this because their opposition is the synagogue. Like the synagogue in Smyrna, the synagogue of Satan, this was the Jew, a Jewish population. From what all accounts we know, was not very large either, but had a more influence and power within the city, at least relatively speaking, than the Christians. And so they could excommunicate them from, um, uh, from the protections of, of the synagogue uh, in the Roman world, which meant economic protections, which meant physical protections, which meant access and all those kind of things. They could keep them out of... of um, of access to, um, to a God who these foreign uh, men and women had come to believe in and to trust and to love. And yet Jesus says, because you've held fast to me, I'll prove that they're liars and that I love you. See, the pressure was not so much from the culture in Philadelphia, but from religion in Philadelphia. And not, not a foreign religion, not a, not a pagan religion, but a familiar religion a religion from which they gained their heritage, a religion through which they had found salvation, healing, and purpose, a religion through which they had found God. And yet, it was indeed a religion and not a relationship, a perception of God that was incomplete from the fullness of God's revelation in Jesus, a way of walking with God that was, despite all its outward appearances, a form of rebellion, that the, the Jewish people within this synagogue had not a heart for God, as he revealed himself and his plans and his kingdom through Jesus, but a heart for themselves, or at least their own version of what God should do and how God should act. To the families of faith under the, this kind of pressure of religiousness, telling them they were missing it and missing out, that they were inferior and outsiders, Jesus, the holy and true one, the holy true one, with the key of David's anointed that opened and shut access to God's kingdom, says, I love you. And someday they'll see that love for, for you, for me, to you. But they'll see it. Because listen, like Jesus, is, Jesus says, like I'm subjecting them to this, to this bounty of your feet. Why? So they can know that I loved you. So they can know my love too. So they can see what was holy and absolutely true. Now, the next verse in this, uh, verse 10, is probably the most quoted and um, least 
um, understood probably verse in Revelation. And so I'll just read it. It says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And this is where we get all of our fun stories of the church leaving before everything gets bad and all that kind of stuff, if you, if you follow the big story of Revelation. Um, but what Jesus is doing here is he's saying this. He's saying, just as he prayed in the, in the prayer in John, 15, um, John 17 to the Father, not to remove us from the world, but to protect us within the world. He's saying, as you kept my faith in me, as you kept my, my word of patient endurance, my promise of patient endurance, that promise will be kept true for you that I will persevere you through this trial. And notice what he says, that I will keep you from the trial, not from tribulation. The trial there is this idea of weighing and measurement. You won't be weighed and measured like the rest of the world is weighed and measured. Why won't you be weighed and measured like the rest of the world is weighed and measured? Well, because you're mine. I love you. You've, you've shown that I love you by loving others, by staying faithful. Like, you're mine. I'm not, you're not going to be weighed in the same way. You're not going to be removed from the trials of the, the whole world. You're not going to be moved from the tribulation. But instead, you'll be persevered through it. And it won't be a test for you. A test of proving for you. It'll be just refining and demonstrating what is already true. That I loved you. And that you're mine. How do we know that? We keep reading in verse 11. Jesus tells them, I'm coming soon. Or don't worry, like, there, there is a moment in which, like, this, is, this, this promise is going to be true. So hold fast to what you have so that no one may steal or seize your crown. There's the one kind of admonition to this group, just like in, in Smyrna, where they're told, don't fear. It's not, a, it's not a rebuke. It's just a strong encouragement because I'm sure there's some um, uh, amongst them that have been persevering for a while, knowing that they're not going to be removed from um, the difficulties, but continue to have to persevere in the difficulties, that their temptation would be like all of us to give in to those things, right? So Jesus, just as a reminder, as an admonition to, to a child, he's like, just like, hey, just remember, don't, don't, don't give it up. Don't, don't let them seize your crown. Why? Because you've already got the crown. You don't need to go, find, you don't need to go find the, buy the crown. You don't need to go trade it in for some little lesser crown. Like, you've already got the crown of life. Don't trade it in. Don't be tempted to. Don't be tired to. Don't be fatigued in it. Don't trade it in. And then he says in verse 12, To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. To the one who conquers, who overcomes, the one who is held fast, who hasn't given up his crown, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Again, the pillar is um, uh, in the temple is this idea of of being firmly grounded and rooted in the Holy of Holies. In the very presence of God. And it's like the pillars that we saw in the, in the picture earlier. It's not like a little pillar, like this little bitty stick that's just kind of in there. I mean, we saw the pillars of Philadelphia. They're massive. They're huge. They're not going anywhere. Even in a city that was constantly barraged by earthquakes, didn't crumble. So are you. And listen, he says, not only are you rooted there, are you grounded there, are you found, is your foundation in the presence of God? There you shall never go out of it. Unlike a city who is always worried about how, when are they going to flee? When are we going to have to get out? When's the next shaking going to cause us everything to crumble? In a city of insecurity that built their whole kind of way of daily officing, daily life on an insecure place, you said, you'll never have to leave this place. Unlike the city in which you're in, 
This never shakes. This never moves. As good as this city is, as parallel as the city runs to the things of the gospel, the city that, I, that you're in, the place where you're in, never moves, never shakes. So why are you so anxious? Be anxious for nothing. But not only is, does it never shake, he goes even further, he says, and in that place, in this unshakable place, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. And in the Greek says, which is coming down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. The city of God. The, 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 even to a, um, a converted, uh, somebody converted into Judaism or a Jew, they would have known the city of God to be Jerusalem, right? And in the, in the visions and the exiles of, of um, the Jewish people, um, one of the hopes that they cling to was God's returning to his city and reestablishing his city, a new city, a city that at the end of Revelation we see in all its beauty and, and grandeur. But Ezekiel specifically, the end of Ezekiel is all about this new city and the ruler of this new city, the, the prince of this city. And he calls this city this. He says, in the name of this city, the city of Jerusalem, the city of God, from that time on shall be the Lord is there. I will write on you, on you, written on you, is that the Lord is there. I mean, how amazing is that? How absolutely incredible is that? How often do we even think that that's true? That written on us is the name of our God. We're baptized like we talked about last week into Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're baptized into this relationship, but also written on us is the Spirit is, this, is that we are, by God's grace, the place where the Lord is. God's name spoken over them by Jesus, the new name of Jesus. Um, uh, if you read the rest of Revelation, comes out again to this idea of there's a way of knowing Jesus that we won't know fully and completely until the end, but we'll know him in a way that we've never known him before. And so all this is promised to them. But listen, like as a Jew who's hearing this or as a converted one into Judaism that's following Christ in this, they would have heard these echoes of number six. And here's the echo. What they heard from Jesus is this. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons, speak to the priests. Jesus has already been named a priest for us, right? The priest, the high priest, right? Thus shall you bless the people of Israel, the people of God. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and the Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you in his presence and be gracious to you for holiness purges that which is unholy. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel. To have our name, to have Jesus put his name upon us, the Lord, God's name upon us, the name of the city upon us, um, is Jesus to bless us. It's Jesus to bless us. Jesus is blessing us. So let he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to us today. Let's pray. Father, we cannot be more, um, honestly, we cannot, truly, I cannot be more humbled about the reality of this, this church family. That you honored them 
in a city that was about honor and loyalty and love. At the end, they're honored by you, and we're honored by you because of your love. How amazing is that? So, Father, I pray as we strive to, um, to be men and women who, um, who live in equal measurement, to walk worthy of the calling that's before us because of Jesus, that we will remember that you honored us and will honor you. That we won't go about in anxiousness and unshakiness, Father Lord, but that we will know that we are secure now and forever because Jesus lives. So it's in his name we pray. Amen. Yeah, I just invite you guys to stand up and worship with me right now.
going to say good morning, but I'm not sure if it's still morning. One more minute. Um, so good morning. Um, it's an honor to share a little bit this morning with you. Um, a word of encouragement and a word of commendation. Um, so at the risk of sounding like Jeremy, um, we spend quite a bit of time here at Christ City talking about what it means to follow Jesus. And um, that really connected in my mind to the encouragement that I want to share this morning. So I'm going to read kind of the mission statement or like the definition of a follower of Jesus. A follower of Jesus is someone who has responded to Jesus's invitation to be continuously in his presence with the aim of inheriting his character and imitating his actions in our everyday places and spaces. So this idea of Following is something that I feel like I have a lot of personal experience with, particularly right now, because as most of you know, we have three girls, two of which are here, one of which is napping, and Fiona is about to be one. So developmentally, where she is right now, she doesn't really want to be very far from me ever. Like, she might play for a little bit, and then pretty soon she picks up her head, and she looks around, and she wants to see where I am, and you hear the little pitter-patter of her hands and her knees on the wood as she comes to find where I am. And usually she's either smiling or demanding that I pick her up. And if she's not doing that, it's pretty likely that either Eliana or Jenna is looking for me and following me around and wanting to be a part of what I'm doing or wanting me to be a part of what they're doing. So around our house is just basically constantly, what are you doing, mommy? Can I do it too? Can you do what I'm doing? Can we do this together? And so I think there's a lot of natural connections between our daily rhythms of life at our house and the experience of following Jesus. So the, our girls want to be with me, they want to do what I'm doing, and they are rearranging everything they do and their daily rhythms and space to make that happen as much as possible. So that's where the conviction came for me and I think the challenge comes for us as a faith family. My concern for Christ City is that in all of our little daily decision makings, we are more driven by a desire to be comfortable than a desire to be a part of his kingdom and to be really clued in to what, who he is and what he's doing. So my question is, how much of our energy do we spend truly asking, Lord, what are you doing in your kingdom right now? And how can we join you in that? And how much time do we spend just trying to be as comfortable and have as easy of a life as we possibly can? When I'm truly honest with myself, I really do want an easy life. A lot more than I want to be checked into his kingdom and what he's doing. 
Now, I don't believe there's anything inherently wrong with comfort. In fact, there are numerous places in scripture, and I could spend probably hours reading through all of the scriptures where people who are struggling cry out and ask for the Lord's comfort, and he shows up. But what stood out to me about all of those passages that are either asking for comfort or talking about the Lord's comfort is that the way the Bible uses comfort is not actually super close to what my quest for comfort, or maybe I should say creature comforts, actually looks like. You see, the comfort of the Lord and his presence don't seem to be actually looking like us as a church being particularly comfortable. The same story is told in two different places in the Gospels, in Matthew and in Luke, of a teacher of the law that came to Jesus and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have dens to live in, and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place even to lay his head. When I read this, I feel like there's still so much about how Jesus did what he did and how he ushered in the kingdom that feels counter to how I make my daily decisions. So I'll say it again. How much of our energy do we spend truly asking, Lord, what are you doing right now? And how can we join you in that? And how much time do we spend just trying to be as comfortable as possible? I find my default is just to try to have an easy day. And where the conviction comes is that it doesn't seem like that was even a goal for Jesus in following him. So my encouragement to us as a faith family as we go about our days would be to ask, where are the places and spaces we might be missing what God is doing in us or around us in our pursuit and our quest for ease and comfort? And how can we understand who God is as the God of all comfort without mixing that up with our cultural understanding of being comfortable? What if the Lord did take away some of our creature comforts and the ones that I hold so dear? How would I respond to that? And how can we move one step closer to following Jesus by really being with him and being like him and doing what he did in ways that might actually feel quite uncomfortable? I also wanted to just share a way that Christ City has really encouraged me, and that is that week after week, I hear the gospel clearly here. Not just from the pulpit, but as I interact with all of you. And I just want to thank you for living like God's grace really is true and ask that you keep walking in the truth of that. So in conclusion, I love to share a verse that reminds us of the giver of that grace. And at the same time, the one that forsook literally all that was comfortable and went to the cross. With no home, with no family, naked. In order that we could find life in him. And it's in Ephesians 1 verses four through eight. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. That's what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom, our freedom from comfort, with the blood of his son and gave us and forgave us our sins. He has showered us with his kindness along with all wisdom and understanding. Jesus, just thank you so much for your grace that you meet us um, 
in our weaknesses and even in our quest for comfort, Lord, that often overshadows our quest for you, God, that you lavish our grace on us even and especially in those moments. Um, and we're just thankful for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Rebecca. As you have your communion elements, you can go ahead and grab those. Um, as you've noticed, we've been reading um, the same confession together. And I know it's kind of long, um, but just as these letters have been building up, I hopefully you're beginning to see as we go through this over and over again um, that we're building into this, that this confession is, is, is taking a bits and pieces of every single one of those letters and coming before Jesus with them. And so, again, I know it's long um, and it's repetitive, um, but sometimes it takes length and repetition for, to get it down into us. And so if you would, stand up with me. Um, um, just as a reminder, we only read the yellow parts together. And so um, you can read more if you want, but just it'll throw everybody off. So, like, so we're going to read the yellow parts together. I'll read the white parts. You read the yellow parts with me, okay? Father God, we stand before you in humble adoration. As we set our face to the task and interest of another week and season as Jesus' church. Forward, blessed assurance that we shall not be called upon to face them alone or in our own strength alone, but that all times we will be accompanied by your presence, strengthened by your grace and encouraged by your family. Thank you that throughout human life from the footprints of our Lord and Savior, King and Sage, Priest and Friend, Jesus Christ, who for our sake became flesh and tasted all the different challenges of daily living, as well as the end we need no longer fear. Thank you that as we go about our work and play, in pursuit of relationships and aspirations, we can be conscious of the spiritual presence of the heavenly host. Thank you for the saints who rest from their labors, the patriarchs and matriarchs, prophets and prophetesses, apostles, noble martyrs, for all the holy and humble, for our dear departed friends and family who have shown us your way. As we remember them, we bless and adore your great name. We rejoice, O oh Father, that you have called us to be members of the church of Jesus Christ. Let the awareness of this holy fellowship follow us wherever we go, cheering us in loneliness, protecting us in company, strengthening us against temptation, and encouraging us to act in love and justice. O Lord Jesus Christ, you called the disciples to shine as light in a dark world. In remembrance and repentance, we acknowledge before you the many faults and weaknesses of which we are guilty. We who in this generation represent your church to the world, we as Christ City Church especially acknowledge our part in this brokenness. Forgive us, we pray, the feebleness of our witness, the meagerness of our giving and loving, and the mediocrity of our zeal. Help us live equal in measure to love received, following the one who cared for the poor and the oppressed such as we. Let the strength of your spirit, O Jesus, be in us all, to share the world's suffering and redress its wrongs in the fullness of your joy. Through Jesus' life given, we live in his name. Amen.
Yeah, God, as we just um, <clears throat> just enter into one last song, Father, I just pray that you would, um, I pray that you would teach us what it means to be a, a, a people that are, that are driven by your presence. Um, God, I just uh, confess publicly my, uh, my own uh, need for you to teach me what it means to love my brothers, um, that I would be able to stand on your uh, name and on your word, Lord, just as we bridge that uh, message of uh, love and, and just that word from Rebecca of, uh, of our idolatry of comfort, Lord, would you teach us how those two intersect, Lord? Um, would you teach us what it means to um, be able to uh, love uh, at times at the expense of our comfort? Um, yeah, God, I just, I just thank you so much that you are, um, that you've made a way for us to be your people, that as small as we are, uh, that we uh, get to stand before you and, and just, uh, yeah, and be in your presence, Lord God. Would we be a people that, um, that, live, uh, that live for your presence, God, that we would be able to, um, yeah, just worship your name and, and give you adoration and glory and honor all the days of our life. And we just, uh, we come before you and, and just ask that as we sing one last song in Jesus' name.
Thank you so much for uh, the ways that you um, make it so evident that you have a plan and a purpose for our lives, that you know us intimately and that you are calling us uh, to just to new heights in you, Lord, that there's so much more of you uh, that's up for grabs if we just um, embrace it. So Lord, let that be the case. Father, let us be a people that embrace uh, all that you have for us, God, and, 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 uh, and, and not, not for our sake, Lord, but uh, for your holy and worthy name. Uh, so God, as we just in here today, God, we just again pray, teach us what it means to be a people of your presence in Jesus' name. I'm gonna um, read this little uh, dismissal doxology thing. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. You are dismissed.